This Guardian Family podcast is sponsored by Jump, the savings fund for children. To find out more, visit jumpsavings.com. Hi, I'm Miranda Sawyer and welcome to the Guardian's Family podcast, the only show that's not too scared to march into a teenager's bedroom and demand to see what's under the bed. In this month's show, how old should your children be before you let them go out on their own? The tricky question of how to teach your kids independence. I'm very aware, you know, that we live in a city where things can happen in a heartbeat. When you grow up in that kind of environment, you can't help but be an overprotective. Jamie Oliver's new baby boy is called Buddy Bear. Is there anything wrong with the growing trend for calling your kids eccentric names? Is life easier or harder when you're a girl called Saffron? I definitely felt a bit awkward, I think, as a teenager, because it did make me feel slightly different to everybody else. But then I had a friend called Tree, so I think she was probably slightly worse off than I was. (laughs) Poor old Tree, I do hope she grew. And this month's family playlist comes from Britain's favourite geek boy, Simon Pegg. This is a family podcast from The Guardian. And I'd like to say welcome to my guests in the podcast studio this month, former Children's Laureate and prize-winning author Michael Morpurgo, whose latest book, Shadow, has just come out. So would you like to tell me about Shadow? It's two stories, really, um, linked, woven together. It's a story about uh, a dog, a sniffer dog in Afghanistan, um, who, and it's a true story, there, and there was a sniffer dog out with an Australian patrol about um, four years ago. Black Labrador it was. Um, And what happened was that there was a firefight. This patrol came under fire. But when it was all over, the dog was nowhere to be seen. And an extraordinary thing happened. They couldn't find the body. They knew the Taliban targeted these dogs because they're very very valuable. They save a lot of lives, and the Taliban shoot them whenever they can. So they thought that's what had happened, and they couldn't find the body, and they went back, and they were very sad because this dog meant a lot to them. Uh, And end of story, they thought. And then 14 months later, out of the desert comes this black Labrador, strolls up to a patrol and introduces himself again. (laughs) And this dog had survived 14 months in the desert. That's the story. And I thought, well, what happened? And, of course, what must have happened is that someone looked after that dog. And in my case, I decided this was going to be an Afghan boy called Aman. And it's the story of um, their relationship, how they grow to trust each other and love each other, of an Afghan family under terrible persecution, in uh, northern Afghanistan, and they try to flee to England, and how they end up, finally, in a terrible place called Yarl's Wood, yeah. where asylum seekers are put and imprisoned, and it's, I think, almost the only place in this country, and we should be ashamed of it, where children are behind bars and behind barbed wire. And Aman, after six years living in this country, having done what he's done, and travelled all the way across the world to get here, um, and his mother are committed to this place before they're going to be deported. And it's a circular story. It's how they come around to meet the dog again. And so that's what it is. That's amazing, I have to say. Well, um, especially for children. We'll be talking a, a bit more about your, your work uh, later on, but I'd just like to bring in my other guest who's sitting over there. Mm-hmm. It's, um, uh, I know you don't like this title, but I'm going <laughs> to give it you. It's Agony Ant, an all-round national treasure, Anna Rayburn. How are you? I've never been described as a national treasure. Well, would and you I, like you say national treasure, good. Agony Ant, not so good. Well, love the job, hate the title.
Recently in Lincolnshire, the family of a seven-year-old girl were reported to social services for allowing their daughter to cross a busy country lane alone to get to the school bus stop, walking a grand total of 45 yards. The huge fuss this caused ended with Lincolnshire County Council backing down from their original decision to take court action. This follows another controversy caused by two parents in South London letting their eight- and five-year-old cycle the one-mile journey to school. So, how much freedom should we allow our children, and at what stage? It's a tough call. We asked two parents how they viewed this tricky question. My name's Caroline, I've got three children. I've got a girl of nine, a boy of 11, and a boy of 13, and uh, I have a husband as well. I've always encouraged my children to be very independent. I've let them cross roads probably from about seven or eight by themselves. Um, the first few times I've watched them, I've taught them how to do it. I've watched them from, from behind. Um, my 11-year-old for the last two years has been taking the dog by himself to the woods and walking around the woods. Uh, they've all been on buses by themselves uh, and certainly on the tube from at least age 10 by themselves. My daughter was... Probably eight when I left her by herself. We have good neighbours. I have a mobile phone. Before then, I would check that she knew how to call me on it. And I would actually test her or test the boys that they could actually phone me and wait for the connection and tell me what the problem was. We've had some um, good family friends in Poland for a number of years and um, my children have wanted to go and visit them. So they've gone as unaccompanied minors on British Airways where an auntie is provided, you pay £50 for each journey and that any child from six years of age can go on a plane by themselves. Interestingly, my children find it rather um, suffocating because this person is with you all the time. You can go to the toilet by yourself, but apart from that, this person's stuck to you like glue and, in fact, they find it rather irritating. And my older son, now that he's over 12, on many airlines can fly independently, he's much keener to do that. Interestingly, I once had um, my nephew on holiday with me and he's... He, of his own choosing, has been very has not has been very dependent, and he was water skiing uh, in a in a park with my children, and he had a tummy ache and he had a phone, and he must have phoned me twenty thirty times um, about the various stages of his tummy ache, and I think it you know he's very he's very very dependent, and so this is a relationship that's been encouraged so that he is unable to deal with any little problem, and. With my children, because they have to get from A to B, they're much more resourceful. So when there's a problem, and life is full of problems, and I think as a parent we are doing no service to our children by ironing over every little problem, making everything easy. They'll go to university and the first crisis, the first girlfriend that leaves them, the first time that there's a problem, they won't be able to cope. My name is Wendy and my daughter is seven. We went on holiday this year abroad and we stayed in a complex, which even though it's kind of locked in, you're still aware that people can get in the complex. So I think there's that, I call it the Maddie effect, you know, but we're all much more aware of what's going on around those places. But we did let her go a little bit more, but I have to say my, my partner was lurking in the bushes quite a bit, like spying, which was quite funny, whereas I was reading the book and a little bit more relaxed about it. I'm very aware, you know, that we live in a city where things can happen in a heartbeat. Everything can change in a heartbeat. And I think when you grow up in that kind of environment, you you want to protect your kids. You you can't help but being overprotective a little bit about them. And even though, you know, I'm a very independent woman and I grew up travelling a lot and going away and I remember, you know, going off to India and my mum kind of looked at me and just dismay. There's always that what if, you know, that horrible feeling of what if happens. So we're always going to be aware of that. Would I allow my daughter to cross a busy road by herself? I have to say no right now.
I just know that she's so easily distracted. She'll be thinking about playing with a friend next door or something that's going on in school or something far more excited or, oh, my God, look, there's a such-and-such bird or something's going on that's far more interesting than quite paying enough attention to what's going on. Even though she's very good and she's bright, there's always that. It only takes an instant, doesn't it? An instant when something goes horribly wrong. And... At the moment, I'm not comfortable letting her cross the road by herself. I wouldn't at the moment, I have to say. So two different kind of responses to the responsibility of a, of a child to look after itself eventually. Michael, what's your response to what you just heard? Um, well, first of all, a, a parent knows her or his child the best, so it's going to be different for every individual, that's for sure. But I do think we live in a time when we are overly frightened and anxious uh, about the world out there. The world out there is safer than it's ever been. We all live longer, including children. Uh, we, we know that. Um, we know there are menaces out there in terms of traffic and unpleasant people. Of course we know that. People have always known that. And we also know that children can get themselves into all sorts of difficulties climbing trees or, or <laughs> whatever. I mean, I live in the middle of Devon, and I've been running a project now with my wife, Claire, for... 30 years called Farms for City Children and we get these kids who come from the city mostly London and they come and live and work on the farm for a week and during that time we deliberately push out the boundaries of what it is that they've ever done before in terms of risk it's not to say that we're reckless about it but many of them are, have picked up on the fear of their parents So what and, kind of things would you let them do? That Well, climb a tree you know, um, and and have their hands a bit dirty. You know, it, it's this nonsense somehow that you have to forever be washing your hands and you have to be quite sure you don't fall over and scrape your leg. What's yeah. that? What What's happened? I mean, climbing trees is what um, I did all my... In fact, I climbed in bomb sites with walls that were crumbling down. That was my adventure playground. Well, I'm still alive to tell the tale, and so quite a few wartime babies growing up. The, the second parent who spoke, um, I mean, I understand exactly where she's coming from. If you've got a child and you really don't think that child is going to concentrate crossing the road, of course you don't let it cross the road. But many children not like that. And if you've got a child who's quite capable, age of seven, to go up to a pedestrian cross and stand with other people and, and cross, fine. Catch a bus to school, fine. Most important of all is to let them walk to school if they possibly can. I mean, in, in your books, one of the themes that one could pick out is the independence of children. I mean, yes. some of them are in, end up in quite uh, perilous situations. Yes. Um, is that very important to you? Do you want to put that in books to encourage children? No, I don't put it there deliberately. I mean, I think that's, that's in a way part of writing... Um, for and about children is that you have to remove the figures of authority and control, otherwise life's no fun. <laughs> you know, it wasn't five went to smugglers' top with their parents. Yeah. You know, yeah. really, you have to get the parents either dead or out of the way, and it really doesn't matter which. They've so got you, to be got out of the your way. Your children end up shipwrecked, and Michael ends up shipwrecked in Kinsuke's in kingdom. In Kensuke's kingdom, he's shipwrecked, and, but the parents have sort of gone off into the darkness in a boat. And Daniel and Gracie are kind of, uh, you know, uh, in uh, in, uh, in in why the whales came. They're kind of running free as well. Aren't yes, they? they are. And I've just come back, for instance, from holiday on Scilly, and actually, it's a really interesting example because on Scilly. Because it's a very small community, um, children on the island run free. 
There's no, no, nothing to run you over at all. Plenty of rocks to slip on, plenty of water to drown in. But eyes are everywhere. And they sort of know when, at what age you can let them, for instance, go down to the beach and muck around. And I was talking to them about this, this very thing. Are you anxious? Do you let the children go down to the beach? No. And they simply say, well, it depends on the child. Yeah. And they're just commonsensical about it. And that's really what we've got to be, just commonsensical. Now, I'd like to bring Anna in. This is a kind of tricky question, isn't it, really? Well, it's a tricky question because the two people that you chose and interviewed, one has one <coughs> child and the other has three. And the three have been brought up to give each other example and support, and the one child is quite different. And I think the bit that's missing from this discussion is how actively you decide to teach your children and at what age. I would never have let my son at 11, cross the main road until he'd learned how to do it because he was Dolly Dream. Yeah. And if he was involved in something, he would have walked under a truck. But presumably you would, let him, you would have let him have different freedoms yes. because he had a different kind of set of skills, if you yes. want to say that. I mean, I find myself fascinating about this problem because, because I, kind of, I understand, obviously, that life, as, as the first speaker said, life is full of problems. And then equally, the second speaker says things can happen in a heartbeat. And these, these are uh, things that I completely understand because the problem is that once you have a... You can say that 99.9% of children who walk to school, it's fine. But then the, the consequence of that kind of 1% is so terrible and so awful that you, can't, you can barely contemplate it. But the it. bit that was missing from these two presentations was the idea that you would have your, to teach your children what to do when things went wrong. And that's what you have to do. And what, Anna, what did you think about the story of, um, of these two kids that were allowed to cycle to their, to their school? It was, it was a mile long. I remember it's funny because I, I live quite near there, not quite in not quite such a leafy area of South London, but they were allowed to uh, cycle to, to their school. It was a mile and they were eight and five and they were allowed to cycle on the pavement. And I remember thinking, eight, yeah, five, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about five. And, and yet they got an, an immense amount of support, yeah. including from David Cameron, actually. Well, the first thing that occurs to me, of course, is that we have romanticised bike riding in London to such a degree <laughs> that now, if you don't ride a bike, there's something wrong with you. And as a pensioner living in South London, can I tell you that if they had ridden down my section of the, of the, of the pavement, I think I might have been slightly caustic. They'd have been pushed off into the road. No, I've never done that and I never would. <laughs> Jamie Oliver has just called his newborn baby boy Buddy Bear. I won't describe the expressions that we have here. They're not too bad, actually, quite neutral. But we've <laughs> not, he's not the only parent to go for what my mother would call a ridiculous name for his child. There are plenty amongst my son's friends, for a start. I, my son is friendly with a Fonzie, an Iggy, a Merlin, a Sonny, and a Jago. <laughs> those are, I have to say, those are just like Richard, John, and Michael compared to, to celebrity kids. There's Rafferty, Mac, Bailey, Harper, Beckett... I could go on. Is an unusual name a gift or a curse as the children grow up? Actor and broadcaster Sue Elliott finds out. Well, I grew up with the stigma of having a, a name called Sole Brotein and I hated it when we'd be in rugby trials on American football trials growing up and we'd have to shout our names out. People would break out in fits of laughter, uh, the, the fellow players. Uh, so my father was in the mould in the 70s of a Jimi Hendrix-esque uh, sort of black hippie pops why did you have to give me such a ridiculous name growing up 
Saffron, also born in the 70s of hippie parents, had some issues in school as well. I definitely felt a bit awkward, I think, as a teenager because it did make me feel slightly different to everybody else. But then I had a friend called Tree, so I think she was probably slightly worse off than I was. (laughs) Would you give your children strange names or are they kind of John and Jane? Well, I have a son called Basil. uh, Basil and Saffron? Yeah. What's your daughter, Oregano? (laughs) No. (laughs) And we did think, actually, I was going to call her Rosemary because I just thought it would be hysterical or Hyacinth. But then I thought, no, it's just too too ridiculous. We'll never be taken seriously again. (laughs) It's not that ridiculous. There's barely a class register in the land without a Zowie or a Mezzanine. Bernadette has taken the idea and run with it four times. Okay, I've got India, Liberty, Orlando and Silver. My proper name is Bernadette, which is, is, is quite straightforward, but it's an Irish Catholic name. Um, my reasoning behind calling my children India, Liberty and uh, Silver and Orlando, I- I'm a creative person, I wanted creative names, but it's just an extension of how I am really and how I felt my creativity would come through the names. Did you consider, like, Jane and Jack... No, 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 no. I didn't think about anything um, like that at all. In fact, Silver's got about eight names because I knew she was my last child, so I gave her every single name that I could think of that I really loved. Silver, what's your full name? Um, uh, Silver Savannah. Um. Can anyone remember Silver's full name, full name no. in the family? No, I don't think we can. I think Silver, uh, Savannah. Silver Savannah, Octavia, River. Silver Savannah, Octavia. Jemima, Mulan. Mulan? Yeah. Did you ever consider that it may cause them problems in the playground? They might get their dinner money nicked. When you have babies, you don't really think about... Well, certainly I didn't. I didn't think about how they're going to be at school, and I thought everybody would just love it and adore them because they had such amazing names. It didn't necessarily work out that way. But that's the thing. Whether you're Silver, Basil, or Jamie Oliver's new son, Buddy Bear, cute in the Moses basket... But what about when you're all grown up and want to be taken seriously? Saffron. With regards to work, I don't really know what people think when they see my name on CV. What did you end up doing? Um, I was an account manager in the city. So that dispels all the myths that you can't be a bank manager and be called Petal. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So you finally become comfortable with your own name. But what about other people? An ex-girlfriend's father once turned around when uh, we were at university and she went home and said, yeah, I've met a new guy after the Dasa. And she's like, oh, my God, Joanne, um, you know, that, that sounds like a vitamin drink, soleil protein. <laughs> Do you get that thing where people are trying to say your name and you see the slight panic in their eyes as to whether they're going to get it right or not? Only if they're reading it out and they'll panic and they'll turn red and they'll give up and I'll just say, just call me Sol, as all as everyone do. So what name do you use, Sol or Sole? I, I only generally use the name Sole if, uh, if I'm trying to chat a girl up. Um, oh, the ladies like it? Uh, generally, yeah. They, and they'll normally ask, uh, you know, are you French or um, can I speak French? And I'll, I'll just say, uh, well, no, I, I can kiss the French way. S'il vous plaît. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> So, um, what do we think of these names? I have to say, I'm a bit of a sucker for them. Maybe it's my age, but if I had my way, my kids would be called much more ridiculous names than they've been called. I just got reined in. I don't think there's a problem with Buddy Bear, because it'll be shortened to Buddy. 
Yeah. And then there'll be a girl who falls in love with him and calls him Bear because it's a private name, and that's fine. But I, I, there's, there's eight names and Mulan, and I still don't know what this guy who calls himself Sol is really called because I can't get the pronunciation. Sole, sole Brotin. Poor little beast. <laughs> what a dreadful thing to do to a child. It does sound like a medicine, doesn't it? It really does sound like a medicine. I mean, do you find, Michael, that you feel, that you feel like you have to alter names according to the era that you're writing for? I mean, can you imagine writing a book about a kid called Silver? Um, I couldn't because I can't imagine um, that person when you say silver. All, 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 I see something silver. I don't see a face. I think, I think it is true. I'm called by a very, very ordinary name. I mean, Michael is really boring. Um, Mikey is even worse. Mike is – I kill people who call me Mike. <laughs> you like my just, husband. Just I, say. I can't <laughs> bear the name. Anyway, and that was my given name, and I'm sure people – because it was a saint, actually. We all had saints' names in my yeah. family. My brother's called Peter. and that's, As it happens, I've got a really odd second name. Morpurgo, which no one can ever pronounce or spell. I'm Morpingo, I'm Flamingo, I'm all sorts of things. <laughs> when you're writing a book, actually, I think it's important for a name to be memorable. Yes. And that, in that sense, I think it's a really good idea to give children strange and different names. When I'm writing a book, very often the name is critical to, to the catch of it. I wrote a book, for instance, if I can see it there now, called Adolphus Tips. It's called The Amazing Story of Adolphus Tips. That is a, a the true name of a cat that I discovered was called Adolphus Tips. I thought, brilliant, Fantastic. Because you don't forget it. And in Kensky's kingdom, there is a dog in there. Um, and I, I was thinking of the name. And, you know, you always think the same thing. You think Rover, you think Sally. And they're all boring, these sort of names. And uh, some kid walking along a lane in the countryside uh, looked at my dog. And um, I got this little lurcher. And um, he says, what's your dog's name? So I said... Bursalette, and he thought it was really funny, and he laughed. <laughs> what a name, what a name. So I said, you got a dog? He said, yeah, Alsatian, bigger than yours. I said, what do you, you call your dog? And he goes, Stella Artois. <laughs> <That's fantastic. laughs> I love that. So the dog in there is called Stella, Stella Artois. Artois, and you don't forget it. That's no, the truth no. of it. But I think not forgetting a character in a book and using a name to be remembered. I mean, I, my, my name is, is a, a compendium of the name that I was given when I was 17 and first in a flat in London because there was already somebody else who had my name. And the Rayburn is my first husband's name, and it happens to be the best thing he ever did for me, and I told him so. Mm. So I'm Anna Rayburn. That's fine. My son is named... So, from... Sorry, are you saying that you weren't Anna? No. What were you then? Mind your own business. Oh, <laughs> she doesn't like her name. That, that's... It's went... another tree. It's another tree. <laughs> Um, but it was to do with the fact that it was blonde and it was tied to a particular actress. Brigitte. And it shadowed you. Brigitte. Marilyn. No. It shadowed. No, you're far too young. <gasps> Marlena. It shadowed. No, I wish. It shadowed my childhood. It drove me crazy. And when somebody finally said, Well, we've got somebody with that name. What's your second name? I said, Anne. We'll call you Anne. I said, No, Anne's English. Call me Anna. I've been Anna since I was 17. But that's. Um, I mean, so obviously uh, you don't want to reveal your name. So it obviously did have some kind of scars on you when oh, you were younger. Oh, I loathed it. And what did it? And why did you loathe it? Because you felt like it was a starlet's name, and you were not a starlet. Or um, I, it was it, it it was blonde, and I was blonde only until I was about eleven years old, and then I was dark, dark, dark before I went white, and I didn't like it. I'm desperate to know what it is. Is it Shirley Temple? <laughs> Nearly as bad. <laughs> You're going to have to whisper it. It's, it's, it's got to be Marilyn. It it's isn't. It's not Marilyn. And she's denying it, you see. She's denying it. It is. It it is, is. Marilyn. It's Marilyn. Marilyn Anna Rayburn. We've got it now. <laughs> nope. I've just got one small tale that I'd like to tell you before we round this up. And it's a genuine story. I was in uh, my local Tesco's with my other half, and we heard uh, one of the girls talking about her friend who just had a baby, and she wasn't quite sure what to call it. 
And she said, well, she was thinking about Horatio or maybe Fellatio. (laughs) (laughs) I do hope she chose the former. Well, we, we told her what it meant. And now it's time for the family playlist. This month with writer, actor and comedian Simon Pegg. From his sitcom Spaced, through films like Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, he's progressed to hanging out with Tom Cruise on Mission Impossible and becoming a fully-fledged, if slightly geeky, Hollywood leading man. Now he's taking on the publishing world with his first volume of memoirs, Nerd Do Well. I joined him at his home to talk family and music. My first track is uh, January by Pilot because... I just I think it's one of the first songs I remember ever hearing, and my dad used to play it a lot. In this is 1973, I guess, and it's the it's just the first tune I remember. And and I and, and when I hear it now, it, it's incredibly evocative because it brings back memories of my the flat we used to live in in Gloucester, and and it being on in the evening and waiting for my grandparents to come and babysit. And it's it just always gets me every time. It's quite. Uh, how can we say this without being rude? <laughs> It's quite kind of trashy as a track, though, isn't it? That kind of, sick and tired, you've been hanging on me. Yeah, it's total 70s pop, you know. It's kind of like, going on, you know. If you think about your household at that time and music, were was your mum into music? Were you into music? Oh, well, we lived over a music shop that my dad and mum and dad ran. So we had music all the time. My dad was in bands. You know, there was always music on. I remember, like, the Bonzo Dog Doodah band really clearly. I remember the Beatles. I remember listening to Blood, Sweat and Tears. The whole house revolved around music. Dad would gig a lot and... Um, you know. What kind of music did he play? He was in a sort of show band at the time. He played like kind of, you know, classic pop standards. Like they were on Opportunity Knocks in the... Uh, I write about it in my book, actually. Uh, they, they they did in 1975 uh, and they did uh, That's the Way uh-huh, uh-huh, I Like It by Casey and the Sunshine Band. Can you remember seeing him? Did you watch it? Yeah, I was. Yeah, I remember it very clearly. But I, I don't... I remember it abstractly more than clearly, I think. I remember... Every, all the family being around at my grandma's. I remember falling over and, and getting a cocktail stick stuck in my hand. I remember seeing my dad playing the piano on the TV and going, shouting, there he is, there he is. And I think dad was there as well because they recorded it. It wasn't live. The winner of that show in the end was Pam Ayres, um, which I kind of like, really, because Pam Ayres is still around. And it's nice to know that, you know, that they weren't beaten by some flash in the pan. Second track. Which one would you pick? Uh, that would be uh, Rosalind's Eyes from uh, Billy Joel's 52nd Street because uh, it's a song that, it's an album, particularly me and my dad used to listen to a lot in the car together. We spent a lot of time in the car together when I was younger. And Why was that? 
Well, because he kind of, because him and my mother separated, he would come and pick me up and we'd have our days out and we'd drive over to my grandmother's or we'd drive into town and we'd drive, he'd take me back at night, obviously pick me up. So there would always be journeys and and, and he introduced me to a lot of music in the car and, uh, you know, everything from the Pointer Sisters to Queen, you know, he kind of introduced me to and we'd listen to the albums together and talk about the music and it's just a great album. I, I still listen to it and um, that song particularly is just a lovely sort of, it ends up with a kind of sort of um, salsary kind of Spanish Harlem kind of. You're not selling it. <laughs> it's got a lovely, uh, let's just listen to it. <laughs> I play nights in the Spanish part of town I got music in my hands Work is hard to find But that don't get me down Rosalinda understands Crazy Latin dancing solo down in Herald Square Oh Havana, I've been searching for you everywhere What's your last track? My last track would be Girl by the Beatles. And it's because it's the first track I remember playing after my daughter was born. Uh, we had the um, we had this we had the, the, the iPod in the delivery room and uh, we were going to we had a, we made a Beatles playlist, which is essentially everything that's suitable for babies. So we took all their sort of naughty stuff out and stuff that's a bit dangerous, like Helter Skelter wasn't in there. <laughs> Why don't we do it in the road? Got kicked out. But um but we said to ourselves, let's remember what tracks on when she's born and we can always tell her. But of course, we were naively thinking that we'd be thinking about that at that moment. You're not thinking about that. You're thinking about the incredible experience of seeing your child for the first time. We had no idea what song was on. But when I regained consciousness of the world around me, it was girl. And it seemed so appropriate because, you know, Matilda's a girl. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anybody going to listen to my story? All about the girl who came to stay She's the kind of girl you want so much it makes you sorry Still you don't regret a single day A girl And how have you found um, fatherhood? I enjoy it. I really enjoy it. It's it's hard a, a little bit because I have to go away and, and, and I really want to be part of, you know, bringing her up it's tough but i i love it it's just it's amazing I, every day I, I have that experience of looking at her thinking where did you come from what what are you you know I, I i check myself every day and it's i the feeling i equate with with being a kid at christmas every morning is like boxing day you wake up and remember the amazing thing you got yesterday and how much you want to play with it straight away and nerd do well it's published by hodder and Stoughton. That's it for this month's family podcast. Huge thanks to Michael Morpurgo. I'm not, never going to say it any other way now. That's wonderful. <laughs> and, go, and good luck with your latest novel, Shadow. Thank you. And thanks to Anna Rayburn and to Simon Pegg. Don't forget to check out The Guardian's family page every Saturday for more of the personal thrills and spills that make up the roller coaster that is family life. From me, Miranda Sawyer, and my producer, Sarah Peters, goodbye.
In today's instalment of the Children's Guide to Bringing Up Parents, brought to you by JUMP, the Savings Fund for Children, we're looking at learning to plan for the future. What's this about, Alexander? Well, Becky, on the whole, parents are rubbish at this. They just live in the present, failing to realise that if my sports kit isn't washed by Wednesday morning, it's bound to be a crisis. The same with my sparkly top on Saturday evenings. How do you help them develop their skills? Help them understand that planning ahead is in their interest too. Take JUMP, the savings fund for children. Put a little money into it regularly over the years and then, later on, when there are big bills to pay for first cars, first flats, going to uni... We'll still be able to cash in our savings and spend it all on clothes. You'll never sell it to them like that, Bex. Find out more about JUMP, the savings fund for children, at www.jumpsavings.com. As JUMP is an equity investment in Witten Investment Trust PLC, please remember that past performance is not a guide to future performance, and the value of your shares and the income from them can rise and fall, so you may not get back the amount originally invested. Issued and approved by Witten Investment Services Limited, registered in England number 5272533 of 201 Bishopsgate, London, EC2M3AE. Witten Investment Services Limited provides investment products and services and is authorised and regulated by the Financial Services Authority. Calls may be recorded for our mutual protection and to improve customer service.